0: mm <laughs> That's chirpybirdinc.com. Hey there, and welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. My name is Joy Rios, and we celebrate and amplify women who are Working and contributing in the health IT space. So I like to think about healthcare as a 30,000 piece puzzle. It is a very complicated space to work in and we all kind of hold one piece of it. So it is fun to invite women onto our show and talk about their expertise. So if you wouldn't mind taking a moment today uh, to introduce yourself and tell us about the health IT puzzle piece that you hold and where you fit into the big picture. Absolutely. My name is Anna Basovich. I'm the vice president of enterprise partnerships at
1: Arcadia. Okay, and Arcadia is a data platform, uh, and what we do is we work with healthcare organizations to help them aggregate their data and leverage it to improve population health.
0: That's it. You're speaking my love language. <laughs> Continue.
1: I am a long-time Arcadian. Okay, and I manage. Uh, the customer-facing work that we do with some of our larger and more complex customers. So these are really large national health plans, uh, larger regional health systems that in most cases are very advanced in taking risk across commercial, Medicaid, Medicare populations um, who, you know, I I get the opportunity to work with some very excited, very passionate leaders
0: Mm -hmm. and it's a blast. So I had a chance to stop by your guys' booth yesterday and was like, oh, give me, give me a little bit of a, like an insight into the kind of data that you guys are tracking for your populations. And I was like, does any of it track into the MIPS area? Are you familiar, oh, I'm yeah. sure, with the MIPS mm-hmm. program? I'm like, do you want to geek out on that at all for a minute? Like, how <laughs> Can you geek out with me on how your platform like, helps uh, people succeed within value-based programs? Sure. So there's a couple of key areas
1: that we focus on are in value-based care, Mm -hmm. and that's quality, risk adjustment, and cost, okay? So on the quality side, it's about rounding up the data, getting it from claims, but also digging into the EHR Mm -hmm. systems to get the really comprehensive, as close to real-time as you can get view of what your performance is and what to do about it. And for me, that's always been a huge part of this and where, where the magic happens in a lot of ways is it's one thing to get a report on your performance. Mm -hmm. It's another thing to get a really recent report on your performance and not say, hey, here's how you did last year.
0: No, 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 here's how you're you're doing today today or yesterday. Here's how you're doing today, but
1: also here's what you need to do tomorrow. When we say that you haven't closed enough care gaps on breast cancer screenings, here are the patients you want to bring in. And how do you engage the population? Really oh, I love that. So
0: can we just stop there for a second? Mm-hmm. I mean, we can continue geeking out. But so instead of looking at just like, here's your numerator, denominator, and your performance rate, you're just like, here's all the people that you missed it on um, altogether that may not even be included in the denominator. Is that what you're saying? That you're just like, we could mm-hmm. help more people, essentially. Exactly. That's yeah. a huge part of it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Sorry.
1: Continue. Not at all. <laughs> so there's your quality measures. Then we take a similar view to risk adjustment, and we say, hey, when we talk about coding, let's get out of the part that makes providers say, you know, this isn't why I went to med school. Let's bring it into how to care for patients better. When we talk about a coding gap, what we're really talking about is a condition that's not being managed adequately. Mm -hmm. If someone's not writing down the fact that a patient has a condition, means they're not developing a care plan. They're not evaluating the patient on an ongoing basis. They're not getting a chance to understand what the right next step is there.
0: Well, there's a lot of people that don't necessarily geek out on coding. So can we, (laughs) and and risk It's a quirky one to
1: geek out on. No,
0: but it's really an important one. So Mm -hmm. when we talk about that, when you think of like, uh, and kind of in layman's terms, if somebody hasn't been, you know, if they don't have it in their record that shows that they have a particular condition, to your point, can we talk about like what that, and what that actually means? Like how that might impact them as an individual you know, for them to either not have the, well, like you said, the plan according to like what would be relevant for them. I don't know.
1: Sure. Okay. So what's interesting for me about risk adjustment is that it's very easy to look at it as documenting, documenting, documenting and writing exactly the right code year over year. But what it really comes down to is CMS looks to healthcare organizations and Medicare Advantage plans and other entities to really engage meaningfully with patients around this. So it's never about dropping a code. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, and there's all kinds of audit structures to make sure that's not happening. But the guidance CMS gives is you gotta see the patient, mm-hmm. and we now know that that can also mean a telehealth visit, but you gotta see the patient, you gotta evaluate their condition. You've gotta understand where the patient is in managing it, and you've gotta pull together or update a care plan that's right for that patient based on where they are. And if we're not doing that on a regular basis, we can't expect that patient to be managing that condition effectively on their own.
0: Well, and that's the thing that it can uh, reset, right? Like after a year, Mm -hmm. so if you are, you may have had a particular risk adjustment factor code on uh, an encounter out, you know, a year ago, but if they see the doctor again and it's gone away, you have to, it's it's an ongoing conversation, correct? You've got to keep it updated. Yeah, Mm -hmm. okay. All right, so we went, with those two, and then the other component is the cost category, and combined quality and cost is like the majority of value-based care. It's the holy grail. It's the holy grail. So can we geek out on that, which is also a riveting conversation. Yes.
1: So when we look at cost and utilization, there's a couple parts to it. There's, again, there's getting health systems more fluent in the language of cost. Mm-hmm. Because when we started value-based contracts five, ten years ago, cost was a thing that health plans dealt with and up until that point health systems had been focused on doing the right thing for the patient smack in front of them mm-hmm. and then it expanded to okay well let's let's get the patient in the door too and then maybe let's find some other ways to help them and total cost of care was such a radical factor to put into these health system contracts because it's like you know what you're responsible for what this patient does when they decide at 2 a.m. to go to an emergency room yep. down the street from you yep when they read online that maybe an MRI would be a great idea for that headache. But the reality is that there are so many more nuanced things and when you talk about cost, it's not about patients deciding to get an expensive procedure, it's about the way that you manage these chronic conditions and the way that they evolve and getting patients the right support at those really critical turning points Mm -hmm. where when a patient gets discharged from an inpatient stay, we know that that's a turning point that's an opportunity to engage really effectively with the full scope of Mm -hmm. that patient's care and drive them and support them in moving towards the right outcomes. And if not, then it can be a situation where the patient becomes a heavy, high-cost utilizer. And that's meaningful from a cost perspective, but it's really meaningful from an outcomes perspective. No patient wants to be in that situation. We want to make sure that patients are feeling enabled and empowered in improving their health.
0: So do you help the providers actually understand um, how patients get attributed to them because that's a conversation mm-hmm. that I have faced with a lot of <laughs> providers. and it is, it is one of the more interesting ones so I would be curious to hear what your experience in that conversation is like.
1: It's a big one and I think what you're getting into also is mm-hmm. this broader question of change man- management and mm-hmm. education with mm-hmm. providers mm-hmm. because it's a spot where you've got a lot of opportunity to engage folks that don't want to look at these contracts as money ball. Mm-hmm. You know they want to do their best taking care of patients. And that's where health systems have the opportunity to put the right care team around them to say, we're gonna have our provider focus on delivering the best care to the patient. And that means that we're going to have um, somebody hitting the phones to get patients in. Right. We're going to have care navigators helping the patients get those specialist appointments. Mm -hmm. Somebody to make sure that the information from that specialist appointment makes its way right back home to the PCP so they can continue to build out that care plan. We're gonna have care managers. yes. And in many cases, we're gonna have somebody that looks at that report and reviews it and says, you know, when we talk about inpatient behavioral health spend increasing 7% year over year, what does that really mean? Mm-hmm. Is, that mm-hmm. more, is that more patients needing more care? Is that the same number of patients needing a lot more care? Is that the same number of patients getting the same amount of care
0: at a more expensive facility? Yeah, I love that, that's great. So Mm -hmm. one of the conversations that I have gotten to experience is like working a lot with specialists. And so dermatologists, for example, who may have a a patient list of like attributed patients to them of like more than a thousand, you know, and they're just like, why am I responsible (laughs) for the total cost of care? I had nothing to do with that Mm -hmm. patient's hospitalization hip you know surgery or a replacement or anything along those lines and just helping them to really like have the conversation about making sure that their patients that may be seeing them for a special like it's that conversation around education of like your pa- those patients may consider you their primary care provider even mm-hmm. though you're technically not a pcp they are seeing you more than they are seeing their general practitioner and so making sure that they have you know, a care manager and asking them those questions and sort of like helping them get engaged in their health system in Mm -hmm. a way that is more, well, appropriate individualized and just like uh, covering the whole part of their health journey so that it's not to say that like, hey, we're gonna try to make sure that you don't have any attributed patients, that we're not trying to get that down to zero Mm -hmm. because that doesn't make sense. But ultimately, how do you educate them so that it's the right patients that are on that list, that it's appropriate and it makes sense. Um, and that's a that's a, just, nobody likes having that conversation. It's fun and not I mean it's not that fun, but we try to make it as fun as possible. It can be it can be <laughs> a really dry
1: discussion. A yeah. lot of playing, well you had four visits versus seven over here. But the neat thing is it's a really good opportunity for that value based care infrastructure yeah. that health systems establish that can really help guide and can make some of those calls because one organization might say, you know what? I don't think a dermatologist should necessarily be the guy on point for a patient's total cost of care. Great, what about a cardiologist? Should he be a cardiologist by himself? Should it always be a partnership Mm -hmm. with general medicine or internal Mm -hmm. medicine? What are are the different options there? And it's really interesting for me to watch the role of the specialist evolve Mm -hmm. as we think about how do they in so many cases, step beyond that visit-by-visit visit that's been traditional and a lot more entrenched, and how do accountable care organizations engage them effectively?
0: Yeah, so does Arcadia provide um, education and resources to help them understand all of that? Like it's one thing, here's a bunch of data, but here's how you interpret it and understand it and what it, how it, it impacts you and what meaning it has. So what we're
1: typically doing is, we and my team in particular, is working directly with the operational and clinical and technical and analytical leadership okay. on the customer side. Okay. And a lot of our goal is empowering our customers to take ownership of that. Okay. Because especially when you look at our enterprise partnerships, which is our larger health systems, mm-hmm. we want to make sure that those folks are really equipped to grow in, a, in an agile and self-sufficient way. So I'll give you a... Small example, but we run a train-the-trainer model. I personally actually love training. Uh, It's a a little bit of my work hobby, and if someone asked me to go in and train a bunch of providers on using some of our point-of-care tools, you would probably have to hold me back a little bit. (laughs) But one of the things that I always point out to our customers is I don't want you guys to have to call me every time you hire someone. Mm -hmm. I want to make sure that you guys have really full ownership of the best ways to use our tools and the ways that are best for your organization.
0: Mm Perfect. Well can you tell me a little bit more about your personal journey like did you know that you were did you have your eyes set on your per- current career when you were younger like did you know out of college <laughs> this is what you were going to do?
1: I didn't okay so uh, my both my parents are software engineers okay and what they were embarrassed to hear me say mm-hmm. coming out of high school was I don't want to do software because that's boring you just have to tell the computer what to do and that sounds lame I want to be you know, I want to be an architect, I want to be a psychiatrist. I had a very long list of things. And I was very lucky uh, a few years out of school that I landed at Arcadia, which at the time was a small consulting company that was really zeroing in on healthcare. care. Okay. And it was a very neat opportunity to work with a number of health plans and health systems, uh, as well as a number of other organizations in the space, to get a good understanding of what it means to deliver care and what's everything that happens behind that curtain mm-hmm. when you think about a patient Having a doctor's visit or a series of them, or ending up in the ER, what's everything that can be done behind the curtain to improve that process?
0: Was there anything in particular that when you landed in Arcadia that is like, a lot of people, really my question comes from when we, a lot of folks when they get into healthcare, they realize like, wow, I can really make a difference here, or it's really impactful the work that I'm doing. Did you have anything specific that like, you were like, oh yeah, this is my place, you know?
1: You know, I think the piece that comes to mind is there was an article in the New York Times maybe a decade or so back, and it was talking about the way that different companies use analytics. And the example that it gave is a company like Target will run all of this complex analytics to figure out what to market to you next. And they had a hilarious situation where a young woman, a teenager, um, received a mailer from Target. Advertising products that are appropriate for a second semester of pregnancy, and her father stormed into Target I furiously, this yes. waving this uh, yes. this this little slick. How dare you insinuate this about my child? But sure, sure enough, his daughter was in the midst mm-hmm. of a teen pregnancy, and her her own you know Target knew before her family because. She was purchasing things that were consistent right. with what women in the first semest- trimester purchase. And all I could think was reading that was, my God, oh, I bet her PCP didn't know. I bet Target knew before her primary care physician. What if healthcare had those kinds of tools?
0: Mm-hmm. And that got me
1: really excited.
0: I remember that. That was like, it was all over the news when it happened. I was just like, it's true. And it just was like mind blowing because mm-hmm. you're like, oh my God, these uh, places that we shop, they know so much about us and so much more than like our closest loved ones, the people mm-hmm. in our family, the people who are supposed to be taking care of us, etc. And it is kind of mind blowing. It's yeah. just like, there's a lot of data and the way that it can be used is uh, just getting more and more powerful like as we go. Mm-hmm. So how are you guys using your data for good? <laughs>
1: So a lot, of the, a lot of the data that we use is really geared towards helping health systems and plans determine the right next action. Okay. And a lot of that is looking at impact and where can you make the biggest difference. Uh, I'll give you one example that I really like is as part of patient stratification, there's a ton of risk scores that you can look at, right? Mm-hmm. And we can geek out on this one for a while too. But there's a lot of ways to say, you know, this is the patient who is going to have the greatest mm-hmm. cost, this is the patient with the heaviest disease burden and all the different ways of looking at that. And one of the stratification methodologies that we run is our care management impact score, which is not just which patient is going to have the highest cost, but which patient is going to have the highest cost that's impactable by care management. So where are those special spots where you have a turning point? Mm -hmm. You have a pivot where a patient can get better or they can get worse. And that's an area that you as a health system can make a really meaningful impact in. And that's one of the things that's so valuable for me because you think about somebody like a care manager that in many cases is you know sitting now at home, previously in their cube, sure. and they're hitting the phone and they're working so hard to engage with patients, working through a series of complexities and barriers. So for me, beyond the fact that you know, all of these things add up and it's a total cost and it's about how much money you make in that MA contract, mm-hmm. there's a really neat angle of what are the places where that person can make a difference? What are the places where that person isn't just running their playbook and kind of checking off the boxes on what to say, but what are the spots where that person can talk to a patient and make a real difference
0: in that person's life? So what are some of those pivot points? Like, is there a report that is just like, here's the list of patients, like what would be the thing that you're dialing in on, for example, or one of the things that you might dial in on?
1: It's the question I always
0: ask, and yeah. I'm always
1: reminded that machine learning means it's always chugging along and figuring it out. But yeah. some of the things that we look for, right, um, there's there's inpatient admissions. So we know that a patient that's hitting the hospital on a regular basis, that's not their idea of a good time. Mm-hmm. And the answer there isn't that, hey, we want them to stop going to the hospital. It's that we want them to start getting a different kind of care. Yeah. Emergency room utilization, huge driver, particularly for, for looking at chronic condition evolution, narcotics abuse, um, number of other areas, behavioral health crises. Again, these are patients who should be getting a different and frankly more appropriate level of care in a different setting. Mm -hmm. Those are a number of them. One of the other pieces that I've always been really proud that we've incorporated into that since its start is socioeconomic factors. Mm -hmm. Where are the places where you can help patients deliver health literacy? You know, as you think about these chronic disease management programs, you see folks asking very frequently how well do you understand your diagnosis? Do you feel like you understand your care plan? Do you understand your medications and why you're taking them? Because that's such a huge component Those are of a patient. Yeah,
0: that's a great question. And then when, depending on their answers, you can point them to resources, I'm ho- hoping. Exactly. Okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that. That's great. I need to spend more time in, with Arcadia. <laughs> <audience. I can't. laughs> Can you tell me a little bit more about your journey, like I'd like to ask, did 10-year-old or 8-year-old you know what you, wanted, know what you wanted to do or what would 8-year-old you think about what you're doing now for a living? I
1: think she'd be a little bit surprised but kind of excited about yeah. it. You know, so I, I came to Arcadia as a business analyst about yeah. 15 years ago. Uh, and you know, my, my background had been in consulting, I've done time at Deloitte. And I had an opportunity to work with a lot of our customers and really just dig into the problems that they were facing. And I became an implementation manager and an account manager. And one of the things that's been exciting for me is I've had a chance to wear a lot of different hats on the way that we implement technology for our customers, but also the way that they roll it out, the way that they really make it effective, and really looking at the ways that several different organizations that work with different populations, that have different internal structures, that. Are or aren't hospital-based, for example, that they can engage around similar-looking problems in different ways that make more sense for them.
0: Got it. So, if sol- solving problems is definitely one of your strong points, <laughs> what would you, how, what advice would you give for women entering their career, and if they are trying to solve the problem of just like, what do I do with my life? You know, right, like. It's different for everyone's journey is different, but is there anything that you know, you've learned along yours that you think would be supportive or helpful for somebody else kind of starting theirs?
1: You know, one of the biggest things that I like to ask is, of the things in front of you on any given day, where can you make the greatest impact? Mm-hmm. And there's this career advice that I know I got in college, I'm sure other folks have, which is do what you love. Yes. And it's great in theory, but, God, 21-year-old me didn't know what I loved? No. It's about getting out there and starting to get your hands into things and figuring out where you can drive real improvement. Mm-hmm. And it can take you in really unexpected directions. And, you know, frankly, I find myself sometimes working a lot closer to the technology than what 8-year-old or 30-year-old me yeah. might have expected. Yeah. But it's about, you know, it's about really making sure that, that you're communicating effectively, that you're understanding what the folks around you are trying to accomplish, and seeing how you can move your work forward in a really meaningful way.
0: And I think sometimes that can be in a surprising way. And so Mm -hmm. sometimes when people follow what they love, they may like love scuba diving, they may love rock climbing, they may (laughs) love reading, right? Or like playing Pokemon Go, like Mm -hmm. who knows? But in different ways that they can actually learn skills from those and take them and apply them to their career. Is there anything that you have um, you know, followed your passion in that is not necessarily healthcare related, but have you like, enjoyed and been able to apply to your work? Oh, what a good question. Let me see what I can think of there. <laughs> hmm. I mean, you know, I
1: think, I think engaging with, with data in new ways okay. is definitely one of them. Uh, I'll give you an example. We were running uh, we were running patient outreach programs, uh, particularly during COVID. Okay, and it was it was a really interesting engagement, and it was pretty different than a lot of the work that we'd done before. But it was something that we'd had in our back pocket for some time, and when COVID hit. We realized that there was a really important opportunity for patient engagement because we were all, you know, watching TV all day long and scrolling through Twitter and we were kind of saying, okay, well, there's kind of a mix of information out there and some of this doesn't look very good. What if this was coming from providers? What if it was coming from health systems? And one of the things that I had a chance to do over the couple of months there of running those programs was really start to dig into the data on that and take a look at, you know, how well are messages getting delivered? Okay. What's the What are the responses that come back from patients? How are populations impacted by that? And that was a piece where, you know, in a lot of ways, I was digging through outreach data. It it wasn't, you know, I probably could have been doing the same thing with Target's mailers or well, something yeah, sure. like that.
0: But does it come in in different forms? You're just like, is it like text messaging, email, mm-hmm. social media, DMs? Like, in what way would you be? Into, into like uh, interacting with that type of data.
1: You know, a lot of it was text messages, okay. and a lot of it is what happens when you text a hundred thousand people about how to stay safe during COVID. Yeah, what do they text you? That's back? what I want to know. What do they text oh, you? Oh my back? God, it's a range. Okay, it's a huge range, and it's really interesting because you learn that you know, you get patients that are asking for help. You get patients that need very specific things. You get folks who say, you know, hey, I'm running low on my medication, and my practice is closed, how do I get a refill?" And that's the kind of thing where, well, gee, you would have thought that they just call their PCP office, but that's that's the medium that they're now engaging on, and that's where you got to meet them at. Right. Um, there's a lot of other feedback. You start to see some of the misinformation that's out there start to come through, and it really helps you understand, again, where that population is at and what are the challenges that you need to address there.
0: Mm-hmm. I love it, that must have been a really interesting project to work on, and keeping you busy during a weird time. Yep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, thank you very much for taking the time to talk with me today. If people wanna follow you, get in touch with you, or follow your work in your organization, where would you point them?
1: Uh, look me up on LinkedIn, Anna Basovich. Uh, and feel free to reach out. I am always happy to geek out on this stuff.
0: I love geeking out. Thanks for geeking out with me. <laughs> <You too. laughs> and thank you for watching. This has been the Hit Like a Girl podcast. And you can follow us uh, on social media at Girl Pod. Thank you. Hit Like a Girl podcast is a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. One thing I love about working with them is that they're mission driven